This is Pen Dust Radio. Welcome, all you literati, you lovers of words and tales, you who need a break in your hurried, harried lives. We have a salve for your soul with stories imaginative and original. Short stories, riveting fiction, and wildly creative nonfiction. Pen Dust Radio. Definitely not the same old story. Please visit us at pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. We publish literary fiction and creative nonfiction. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com. What do a boxcar riding, washed up sax player, Tijuana cop, a Scandinavian diplomat, a gorgeous high diver, and a racehorse ready for the glue factory have in common? They all turn up in Sean Murray's highly entertaining short story. Saxophone player Matt McCune just wants to get to San Diego in hopes of rekindling an old flame and finding a job. What happens after he arrives, where no one and nothing is as it seems, shows us that a lost cause may not always be as lost as it might first appear. Author Sean Murray is an analyst for the U.S. Department of Defense. He's a lawyer by training and previously worked as a foreign service officer for the State Department in Lithuania, Moscow, and Washington, D.C. He is married and currently lives in the D.C. area. McFarland's Unreasonable Expectations Written by Sean Murray and read by Tom Zingarelli this is the prime, Mac. This is the moment for heart and big strides, advancement, full living. The body still youthful, bearing up, the faculties aligned to high purpose. A man in his middle thirties will surely never know an age of greater power, right? Oh, this is the prime, Mac. This is your life. These musings were delivered in the manner of an exhortation to himself. As Mac McCune rolled out of Las Cruces, New Mexico, bound for San Diego, in a rail car that also contained an asthmatic thoroughbred, a seemingly consumptive officer of the Tijuana police force, and a coffin sealed with the stamp of the Norwegian Consul General for the Western Territories of the United States. Of the car's occupants, there was a distinct possibility that Mac was in the worst shape. For one thing, he'd been using his trumpet case as a combination pillow, footstool, and overnight bag for a good, well, who could say how long, since Denver anyway, he distinctly remembered there being a suitcase in Omaha and even his old man's embossed leather dop kit as recently as Rapid City. But then there'd been that incident with the Arapaho gentleman outside Jackson Hole, and after that, things had gone blurry for a while. Las Cruces had held the mixed blessings of penury, a warm, dry climate, and a fair to Midland racetrack. It was there, at the Sunland Park track, that several crucial events had taken place. First, Mac had gotten a shower, or more like a hosing off, a seminal virtue of racetracks, at least from the perspective of drunk bum trumpet players, is that they have accessible outdoor spigots, hoses, drainage, and often even a few cleansers that Mac had found surprisingly congenial to the pH levels of human skin. Mac had wandered unhurriedly, back past the escort horse stables 
to the post-race paddocks, as if a man with a trumpet case under his arm had every reason to walk through to the backside of a racing operation. Once inside, he found a clean grooming stall, asked an indifferent Guadalajaran groom to look the other way, stripped and scrubbed. He went for one of the oatmeal-based soaps. This wasn't his first time. Second, he met Jorge, the Tijuana cop, who, it turned out, specialized part-time in finding value, economic and otherwise, in horses thought to be of little use to the racing industry for one reason or another. It wasn't so much that he rehabilitated them, or rescued them either, out of any tender-heartedness or moral opposition to glue, rather that he had deep within him the sensible and patient man's low-level amazement at waste. Thus, in addition to keeping the streets of Tijuana safe for American profligacy, debauchery, and general incaution, Jorge was running a killer side business in stud-farming thoroughbreds that nobody else figured were worth much. Case in point, the wheezy specimen Jorge was now feeding the same mixture of oats and raisins that Mac had once or twice surreptitiously dipped into for a handful of sustenance. According to Jorge, the horse named, improbably, Mac, technically McFarlane's unreasonable expectations, had power on top of power, rocket fuel and gun thunder in his haunches, along with the thoroughbred work ethic, that manic drive to burst and burst and burst, always headlong, for the sheer rightness and fulfillment of it. But his lungs never seemed to hold out, and his owners gave up on him, sold him for a couple hundred to this Mexican who couldn't believe anybody could be so stupid as to keep an asthmatic horse in a barn. Jorge shook his head as the train rocked, and Mac, the horse, buried his nose in the bucket of oats his new owner held up for him. Just pasture him, Jorge complained. Where I come from, man, we know this all the time. Horse can't breathe, keep him outside, man. Nine times from ten, he'll clear up. At this, Jorge had a coughing fit that caused him to drop the feed bucket, and Mac, McCune, had reason to wonder aloud whether some sort of emergency assistance should be sought. I'm fine, Jorge said, straightening his lanky frame. I'm just allergic to horses. The third thing that had happened to Mac and Las Cruces was that he had called Evie. Evelyn Marie Gardner, late of Mac's own hometown of Sioux Falls, South Dakota, was the grand and final cause, at least in Mac's own mind, of his dubious status. She provided, he thought, forlorn teleology of his tumble-down cosmos. Evie, as he had always known and forever would know her, had been an ardent kid in every respect, one of that strain of wildly successful and uninhibited American teenagers with whom, when they were girls instead of boys, nobody quite knew what to do. She was, for instance, an expert, unbeatable swimmer. Bare of torso, thigh, and luscious shoulder, she would take on men and boys of every stripe and size at the local pool and whoop them comprehensively, a fate Mac had been spared at the time by his raging hydrophobia. He avoided opprobrium, chiding, and being labeled an irredeemable chicken only by resort to the decidedly plausible defense that, hey, what idiot wouldn't rather watch her than race her? And so it went, through their school days, Mac watching Evie swim, Evie watching Mac play at dances and on holidays and in church productions and anywhere else the civic atmosphere demanded brass. On the day they graduated, Mac, an offer in hand from Harry Tilton's big band and jazz orchestra, 
asked Evie to marry him and set off, see the world, at least Chicago, maybe even Tokyo. Live a life of trilling, golden romance. He was perfectly positioned, he'd thought to himself. Money, fun, gleaming hair, how could she say no? She said no. It was a tearful scene, but she wanted what she wanted, and that included college, French literature, German philosophy, the stuff they didn't usually teach girls. She wanted to meet somebody Jewish, for God's sake. Maybe Hannah Arendt, who could say? She said no, and that was the beginning of the rum days for Mac. It was tiki time in America then, the war just over, and Mac found himself more and more over the years taking his paycheck in Mai Tais. He played in all 50 states, including Alaska and Hawaii before they were states, plus Puerto Rico, Cuba, and Saskatchewan. He moved up from second trumpet in Tilton's to leader of the Mac Five, his own multi-purpose quintet that held down a quasi-regular spot at Rico's in Kansas City, but ranged as far afield as the Southern California beachcombers scene with its new bikini culture and loaded punch-type drinks, each of which was key to Mac's routine at the time. He was doing everything he could ever have imagined, which was where the bikinis came in. It's just that he wasn't doing it with Evie and so hardly wanted to remember any of it, which was where the spiked fruit juice came in. And so on and etc., down the bleary years, no word from Evie, until however many days ago it was, or weeks, when Mac had passed through Old Sioux Falls and heard from Billy Roundtree at the Ziggurat Cafe that he, Billy, had just last month seen Evie starring in, get this, get this, Billy gushed, a synchronized swimming show at the Coronado Hotel just across the bay from San Diego. Still with the legs, that Evie, Billy said. Knock me on my ass. Yeah, Mac said. I know the feeling. When Mac called the Coronado from a payphone in the parking lot at Sunland Park and asked for Evie Gardner, they asked who was calling. And he hesitated for a moment. An old idiot was who. An old flame. An old bum. An old friend, he finally said. His necktie was stuffed into his breast pocket. He had horse shampoo and oatmeal crust behind his ears. Evie came on the line and said his name. Mac. My God, Mac. And he buckled at the sound of it. His name from her, affirmative. He'd half forgotten it. He told her where he was and that he couldn't quite remember how he'd gotten there. He told her how he'd heard about her from Roundtree a little while back and how it had sent him in disquieting direction since. He told her he was broke, hosing off in horse stalls, out of his mind, and still tipping somehow down. She said she knew she'd heard. I'm all at backwards angles to myself, E. I know. She asked him if he still had his horn. He said he did. She said if he could get himself to California, well, she didn't know what else she could do for him, but she was pretty sure she could get him a gig. That night, Mac and Jorge got on a train with a horse and a dead ex-Norwegian, death respecting no borders, and rode. Initially, they rode in companionable and undramatic silence until outside, all bone and dove-colored, the Desert of the White Sands missile testing range rolled into view. Jorge got up to stare into it, as if it might divulge to him its oracular secrets and truths. For the longest time, he stared and stared, and Mac and Mac, fell asleep in the gathering moonlight. 
Greater men than Mac McCune had been saved by the immensity and pellucid blue of the Pacific Ocean, but lesser ones as well, and anyway who had time for rank ordering. Mac, like many a grieving soul before him, saw the light in California, and not all of it was emanating from the hot San Diego sun. Standing on a concrete dock, as Mac and Jorge and Mac rolled to a stop, was Evie, radiant, resplendent, electric, a singular pearl in white taffeta. Also, a Scandinavian diplomat named Rolf Morstad. Mac's heart went temporarily sideways at the sight of this tall, tanned, and implausibly blonde interloper, but he and Evie didn't exactly seem to be together, and indeed it would appear later that they only somewhat tentatively knew of each other. For the moment, the surprises regarding who knew whom lay elsewhere. Evie! Mac shouted, waving from the open door of the train where he stood with Jorge. Wait, Jorge said to Mac with sudden deep suspicion. You know her? Jorge! Evie exclaimed in only moderately well-concealed shock. Wait, Rolf the blonde consul said to Evie. You know him? Evie stared at Rolf. Mac! Of course I know Mac. Who's Mac? Rolf asked. I want to know how you know Jorge. Mac and Jorge got out on the loading dock. Mac, the horse, knocked a hoof against his stall in the train car. How do I know Jorge? Evie asked Rolf, seeming to stall. How do you know Jorge? How does Mac know Jorge? Evie looked back at Mac now. Come to think of it, how do you know Jorge? She asked him. Who the hell is Mac? Rolf asked again. I am, Mac answered, unless you mean the horse. What horse? Rolf was utterly uninformed. Mac almost felt bad for him, even if he had been standing with Evie. Jorge's horse, Evie answered Rolf. She was clearly improvising, seizing on the equine theme. I know Jorge because of his horses. I like to go down to Tijuana and ride. What? Mac was incredulous. You've never been on a horse in your life, he said. Shut up, Mac. You haven't seen me in sixteen years. I learned a lot of stuff. A little German philosophy, maybe, Mac asked. Wouldn't you like to know, Evie parried. Okay, Ralph the Norwegian said, making a gesture of temperance with his hands flat in the air in front of him. His inner diplomat was taking over, re-establishing a zone of poise, perspective, clear-thinking, good humor. Mac was impressed. Okay, let's reset. This is actually kind of funny. He shook his head and laughed. I'm Rolf Morstad. We have Everton and Mac here. And it seems everyone is either with Jorge or his horse. But I just came to pick up a dead body. Well, welcome to San Diego, Mac McCune. City of sweet light, of cool, bluesy harbors. City of renewal. After the initial confusion regarding who knew whom and how and why, Jorge got his horse packed off to a breezy California pasture to stabilize for a while before being trailered to Tijuana, and Rolf got his body bundled away to a morgue for temporary safekeeping. Evie had then taken Mac back to the Coronado and gotten him set up, introduced him to the house band that would be taking him on as a favor to her. Then she'd taken him across the street to Feynman's men's clothing and hats to pick out a new suit. On credit. Her credit, of course. His being worth less than oatmeal horse soap. 
Being exhausted and dry for several days, Mac didn't say much through all this, though he did manage to thank her for the suit, and even declined her offer of dinner in favor of collapsing into a bed in his new room at about 6.30 in the evening. When he woke up, it was past eight the next morning. Tuesday, maybe. He showered and stepped out, and there at his feet was a fresh and crisply printed Union Tribune, its 18-point font imposing above the fold, Russian defector says U.S. leaking secrets to Soviets. Mac picked it up. The cool paper, the deep rustling sound, the ink and chemical smell. How long had it been since he had picked up a paper and flipped through the news? How long since he'd been normal enough, functioning enough to process information about the world or care about his place in it? Now he held these baseball scores and reports on state senate hearings in his hands and trembled a little, partly because he hadn't had a drink for a week, but mostly because he'd been so far gone, and yet here were these basics of humanness, still available, just walk into them, Mac. He folded the paper under his arm and headed downstairs with his hands in his pockets. At breakfast, Mac was surprised to see a familiar face from the day before, Rolf Morstadt, in a pearl-gray suit and a blinding white shirt, orange tie. He, too, was reading a paper, but was glancing around all the time watching the room. When he saw Mac, he hesitated, but waved. Mr. McCune, he said as Mac approached, here for breakfast. I am, Mac said. You? Rolf nodded. Join me? Happy to, Mac said. And he meant it. It seemed likely that Rolf was sniffing around on Evie's trail, which should have gotten Mac's hackles up, and did just a little, but he couldn't help liking the guy anyway, somehow. A few days ago, Mac had been borrowing hygiene products from barn animals. Now, here he was about to start talking politics over eggs and ham, at the Coronado with a diplomat. A diplomat. Things were shaping up all around. I can't believe this timing, Rolf muttered to himself, slapping the front page of his own newspaper in seeming reference to the Soviet spying story. How's that? Mac asked, not sure what it had to do with anything. Rolf hesitated, squinted. Well, he said, Bodingham repatriating, it goes by fishing vessel north through the Bering Strait, over Russia to Norway. But now, with this news, everything will be tighter. That seemed somewhat vague and elliptical to Mac. What exactly would be tight in the middle of the Pacific or the Arctic Ocean? But then, what did he know? He was a trumpet player with some catching up to do. And in any case, Rolf changed the subject. He squinted again. It seemed a natural manifestation of his seriousness. So, he said, you know Miss Gardner? Since forever, plus two weeks, Mac said. Rolf laughed genuinely. That's a long time, he said. Mac reflected on this, thought of Evie in pigtails and in various swimsuits. Then he thought of the intervening years, the ones seemingly without any fixed reference or center. He looked into his coffee and conceded, We're not as young as we used to be, that's surely true. But she still looks wonderful, if I don't offend you to say it. Rolf stopped squinting, opening his face in full earnestness, his eyes operated by some exquisite emotional mechanism. I suppose if I had any right to take offense, I would, Mac admitted, but I don't, so I won't. Mm-hmm, Rolf confirmed. They understood each other. Listen, I presume you've got work here, 
Rolf asked. Playing the trumpet for the house band, Max said. Starting? Tomorrow night? Ah, good. How would you like to continue our conversation this evening? I can show you around. We'll have dinner, a drink, whatever you like. Max smiled and shook his head in wonder at his improving fortunes. Yes, Rolf asked. Things are shaping up all around, Mr. Morstead, all around. That night, however, Rolf bailed. When Max showed up to meet him in the lobby, there was only a note left with Timmons, the Coronado's impervious and primly mustachioed major domo. Mr. McCune, so very sorry. Consular duties and all. We'll try again soon. Rolf Morstead. It was written on thick consular stationery, with a gold and glossy embossed seal proclaiming Rolf the Consul General of Norway in the western United States and Mexico. And Mexico, Mac thought. That's a hell of a territory to cover. From Montana to Oaxaca? What kind of wardrobe must the guy have? Mac flipped the edge of the note back and forth against his fingertips and looked around. Timmons regarded him impassively. Well, Timmons, Mac said, I got stood up. Oh, Timmons replied, all dressed up and no place to go. New in town, don't really know anybody. What do you think I should do? What do you do for fun? Oh, I don't have fun, Timmons deadpanned. Mac considered this. Well, I'll grant you it's not for everybody, he eventually allowed. Perhaps, sir, Timmons gallantly volunteered, if you're not intent on painting the town red, as they say, you'd enjoy an evening here, taking in the house entertainment. Mac made a face. I don't know, Timmons. Starting tomorrow, I'm going to be the house entertainment six nights a week. I suspect I'm going to have my fill of reheated Glenn Miller and all. Timmons was undeterred. No, I'm sorry, sir. I meant to say that perhaps you might be interested in the pre-dinner show, our so-called Aqua Spectacular. Mac nodded slowly. It wasn't that he'd forgotten about Evie and the show. Quite the contrary. He'd been trying not to get worked up over it. Evie in sequence swimming briefs, all curvilinear, kicks and splits and dives. Sure, he was ecstatic to see her again, to be around her, and maybe even edge into her life, maybe get together somehow. But he'd been trying to temper the impulse. He was coming off a bender and a three-day train ride with a horse and a dead Norwegian. He already owed the woman money. To watch her work without her pants on for an hour would be rash, improvident, too much too soon. It was folly. It was inevitable. Sure thing, Max said to Timmins, which way to poolside? Predictably, Evie was magnificent. The show, well, maybe not as much. It was certainly a wonder of feminine intentionality, but there was something grim in the nearly panicked execution of it all, and Mac couldn't help wondering whether just because a given feat of group mastery is possible, it's therefore automatically a good idea. But whatever the verdict on synchronized swimming as an endeavor, Evie was a vision. Mac made his way to her dressing room after, past several dripping props, inflatable palm trees and the like, a giant polystyrene shark. He knocked on the door that had a yellow star with Evelyn Gardner written in flouncy cursive on it, Evie answered, wearing a robe. 
Nice star, Max said, indicating the door. Thanks, Evie said. I hear it used to be red until the McCarthy hearings. Are you now or have you ever been, Mac joked. Have I ever been what? Evie joshed back, her eyes crinkling at the corners, and all the more gracefully for the wear of age in chlorine. Mac was left without a slick retort. By the way, Evie went on, nice suit. Thanks, Mac said proudly, tugging his lapels. Friend of mine helped me get a good deal on it. I'm paying her back as soon as I start getting a regular paycheck. Well, it looks super on you, Evie said, and then closed her mouth quickly, seeming to check herself. I mean, well, you know what I mean. It's a nice suit. Mac jingled some change in his pocket. Evie touched her hair to see how it was drying. Hey, did I see you with that Norwegian diplomat at breakfast this morning? Evie asked. Mac brightened without knowing why, perhaps just the thought of her casual nearness, passing by the dining room in the morning on the way out, seeing him there, maybe smiling to herself. Yeah, he answered. Were you there? I didn't see you. No, no, she said. Just, you know, coming and going. Right. Yeah, Rolf and I were going to get together for a drink tonight, but he canceled. Mac fished for the note in his inside coat pocket and pulled it out. He handed it to her, and she read it more intently than one might have imagined she would. He canceled? Mac shrugged. You just read the note yourself, he said. Yeah, she said again, seeming to give it more thought than the circumstances warranted, which made Mac a little antsy. Why, what about it, he asked her. Oh, nothing, she said. Really? I thought you'd only just met him for the first time yesterday. I did. I'd seen him around, but... Mac stuck out his hand. Can I have my note back? he asked. Evie handed it over without saying anything, and Mac put it back in his pocket. Anyway, he said. Yeah, she said. I'm starving, Mac said. So you want to take our Norwegian friend's place on my dance card for the evening? She looked back into her dressing room, seemingly at nothing. Um, she mumbled, then looked back at Mac. Well, where would we go? Search me, Mac answered. It's your town. Yeah, Evie said, seeming to wrap her mind around a night out with Mac. Of course, Mac said, I've only got about eighty cents on me. It's going to have to be your treat. Mac and Evie on Coronado Beach. Mac and Evie eating ice cream cones. Mac and Evie in the wavering filter light of sunset. The slow wash of ocean. The long strings of lights coming on. This felt a little like the prime, Mac, a little like the prime. There was a bandstand, an open shell behind a raised stage up a ways, where some teenage band was doing passable greaser ballads, half jangly new rock and roll, half heartbroken torch songs. An Italian restaurant nearby had tables out on a patio, and Mac and Evie sat down. These kids aren't too bad, Mac said, gesturing at the bandstand with his chin. Okay, I guess, Evie agreed. They could use some brass. A waiter came and they ordered their inevitable pastas. Then Mac ordered wine, and Evie's lip twitched a little. Don't worry, Mac said. I've never had any trouble with wine. Only rum, or scotch, sometimes gin, and tequila, but only once, and it wasn't my fault. I was told it was a kind of ancient Peruvian iced tea. Evie still looked nervous and suspicious, but she laughed in spite of herself. 
Honestly, Mac, Peruvian iced tea? Where would ancient Peruvians have gotten ice? Mac nodded. That's a fair point, in retrospect. Evie shook her head, and the dark, dexterous ringlets of her hair danced. God damn it, Mac, she muttered. This caught him short, the growl and spit of it, out of nowhere. God damn it, you just, you just... Mac watched an ant on the patio wrestle in vain with an epic crumb. It heaved itself over and over against that great latticework of baked gluten, but to no avail. And you sit there, Evie went on, seeming to continue something she hadn't really said yet, like some kind of viscount or something, eight feet tall, perfect shirt, haven't got three nickels in your pocket. Well, I did before the ice cream. Shut up, I'm excoriating you. That's the second time in two days you've told me to shut up. So what? I bought you a suit in between. Evie. Max still didn't look up from what he now thought of as his aunt, heroic, doomed there on the concrete. It's unclear to me how I got to be the villain in this little melodrama. You're the one who gave me up for bust. Jesus, Mac, that was a hundred years ago. I mean, what are you doing here? At that point their pasta arrived, and Mac's Cabernet. He had ordered the penne so as not to splatter sauce on his suit in the slurping of long noodles, spaghetti or linguine, say. They were quiet while the waiter set everything out. Then Evie said, You ordered the penne so you wouldn't splatter sauce on your suit, didn't you? Mac hesitated, sensing he'd been accused of something. Yeah, he ventured. Evie reached across the table, took Mac's wine glass, and drained it in one go. Mac eyed her with what felt like a very prudent weariness. The Chaim, he said. She licked her lips. The band down the way took a break, and there were only ocean sounds. Eventually, his pasta gone, his clothes still immaculate down to his pocket silk, Mac asked, Did you really learn to ride horses? She was looking out at the ocean. I really did, she said. Jorge's horses? Mac asked. She didn't answer directly, but said instead, with what Mac thought was unaccountable distrust, I still don't get how you knew him. They drove south down the bay on State Highway 75 toward the farm where Jorge was keeping his horse. It was dark, and the bay breeze was dense with mixed smells, tuna and pine. When they turned a little inland, all was dust. Mac thought of his shoes and the cleaning they'd need, the polish. Funny how he fixated on slickness and precision when he was sober. Everything just so. When they pulled into a circular drive in front of a smallish, split-level farmhouse, however, clearly nothing was just so. Two black-and-white SDPD cars were parked on the grass to the side of the house, their red lights all a-twirl. There was a sense of movement in the house, and two officers stood near a floodlit flagpole in the center of the driveway. Mac could just make out a horse thundering back and forth in agitation near a pasture fence, maybe eighty yards away. The officers stopped talking when Mac and Evie got out of the car. Excuse me, please, one of them said and held out a hand to indicate that they shouldn't approach further. Can we help you? Just here to see a horse, Evie volunteered. You own a horse here, the cop asked. No, just, we know a guy, Evie answered. The cop sized them up in their sharp outfits. Could you step this way toward the lights, please? Slowly, 
His tone was officious, hollow, fake, aggression dressed up as formality. Cops made Mac's hair stand on end. Evie, though, seemed relaxed, if cautious, and he followed her toward the lights. What's all the fuss? Evie asked. Up close, the two officers looked almost identical. Buzz cuts, no lips. Brothers, maybe, Mac thought. Did you know a Jorge Campesinos? Mac froze. Did, he asked. Past tense? What are your names, please? Mac felt as riled as that horse in the pasture. He wanted to bolt around a little bit. Jorge had talked about the thoroughbred work ethic. The way a racehorse's answer to everything was to mash the gas pedal. Not a trumpet player alive who couldn't get behind that, Mac had thought at the time. Now he felt it, viscerally. Even cool Evie seemed a little thrown. She hesitated over her own name. Evelyn, Evie, Evelyn Gardner, she said, looking at Mac. The cop wrote this down on a clipboard without asking how to spell it. Mac McCune, Mac said. This the cop did not write down. Rather, both he and his colleague looked up at Mac with alarm. Mac? Yeah, why? The one without the clipboard jogged to one of the cruisers. The other one said, Jorge Campesinos was found dead with a small notebook in his back pocket. Kind of like a day planner. The other cop came back with the specimen in question in a plastic bag. He was wearing gloves and took it out, flipped to the last page with writing on it, held it up. The one with the clipboard read off the page, Tijuana con Mac, Viernes. Tijuana with Mac on Friday. Everyone looked at Mac. Mac looked at Evie, who, in a single fluid motion, picked the handcuffs out of the belt of the cop standing nearest her and cuffed Mac's right wrist to the flagpole. Moments like these, alone in the night, and say, handcuffed to a flagpole, while a pair of lipless cops discuss your fate inside a featureless San Diego farmhouse with the love of your life, Mac bizarrely often felt like his best self. The ludicrous, unreal aspect brought out a sort of categorical insouciance in him, and the futility took all the pressure off. He was free to be fatalistic without the hectoring aspect of American materialism to trouble him. The prime? Big strides? Hell, nothing he could do about it now. He reflected on this. If he stood close and leaned against the pole, he could put his hands, even the cuffed one, in his pockets like a man leaning against a lamppost, unhurried, imperturbable. Maybe, he thought, this materialism thing was the key. Maybe the obsessive fakery of it all was what he couldn't put up with. And there was a humility in fatalism. This moment, absurd and inescapable, had shorn away some pretense. Now there was only the endless, annihilating forward stretch of the universe. And maybe that was all right. It might have been a border thing, he thought the northerly waft of innate Mexican resignation. Then he thought, no, bullshit. I'm still just chained to the fucking flagpole. He took his hands out of his pockets and looked at the cuffs, which shone in the spotlights. He yanked on them, testing first, then yanking and yanking in a fit of rising peak. The metal cuffs on the metal flagpole made a terrific racket of clanging, and the commotion startled the horse in the pasture who had gone quiet since Evie and the cops went inside to talk. Now Mac heard him snort and neigh and stomp around. Mac looked up, 
but he could barely see beyond the spotlights to the pasture fence. Max shook his head. Horses, he grumbled to himself, and looked back at his cuffs, then suddenly looked up again. Hey, he thought. Hey, was that Jorge's horse out there? That's gotta be Jorge's horse, he said out loud. Hey! He started banging his cuffs again as loudly as he could and shouting in the direction of the house. Hey, he shouted, and the horse bolted off in an angry sprint. Hey, that horse is Jorge's horse. That horse is Mac. He shouted over and over again and banged his cuffs, trying to get the attention of someone in the house. Hey, it's Jorge's horse. He's talking about his horse. The horse's name is Mac. Eventually, Evie came out and Mac stopped banging around with his cuffs. Instead, he pointed at the pasture as she approached. Hey, he said quieter now and a little breathless. It's the horse, E, not me. The horse is Mac. Tijuana con Mac Viernes. It's the horse. Evie looked at the pasture where Mac was pointing with his free hand. She took a deep breath and seemed uneasy. Yeah, we put that together eventually on our own, she said, without yet looking back at Mac, McCune. Well, then let me out of these, he said, jangling cuffs against pole again, lightly this time. Evie acted as if she hadn't heard. Mac, she started, but then hesitated. What? Mac? What? Come on, E, the suspense is killing me. Finally, she looked at him. Mac, I can't tell you everything. In fact, I can't tell you much at all, but, well, put it this way. I'm not really a synchronized swimmer. Mac blinked. Mac, I want you to do something for me, Evie continued. Mac stood up straight as the only clearly available means of expressing his reticence. What, he asked, and why? Drive Jorge's horse to Tijuana along with Rolf and his dead body, because we don't think it's a dead body at all, but rather a coffin full of faulty but still highly classified missile parts, scavenged from the New Mexico desert. Max stared at Evie with his mouth open in predictable disbelief. Well, you asked, Evie pointed out. Max shut his mouth and looked out at the pasture. He walked the circumference of the circle, allowed to him by the radius of the handcuffs and his right arm. I suppose I'm not getting out of these any other way, he asked, indicating the cuffs. Evie shook her head. Suppose I agree, just to get out of the cuffs and then bugger off. Suppose you do. Suppose you never see me again. Evie looked into the night. She marshaled her argument. Well, number one, you know you couldn't stay away from me if you tried. You came to me from across half a continent. And number two, consider for a moment the things I've told you. How do you think I would know such things? And if I know those things, don't you think I'd be able to know where you are if I wanted to? Mac pulled as long a face as he could manage. Then he popped a single eyebrow in defeat. Well, at least we reached an agreement he said. It felt like the scope of things had ballooned a little out of control. Evie claimed to have some kind of ill-defined and covert federal law enforcement gig. That nice diplomat fellow was a Soviet spy and maybe a murderer. An upstanding Mexican was dead, for God's sake. And now Mac was supposed to play-act the accomplice role to help get Rolf picked up in a joint Mexican-U.S. sting at the port outside Tijuana. 
because they suspected him of shipping these coffins with rocket parts in them under cover of his consular duty to repatriate the remains of Norwegian citizens. And all along, U.S. warhead tests at the White Sands Range had been leaving exploded missile parts in untraceable regions on both sides of the border. Mexican authorities, like Jorge, were seeing a rogue but thriving and lucrative international trade in them. That was why Rolf had known who Jorge was. Jorge had been snooping around his trail for a while. It boggled the imagination. Or at least it boggled Max, and he liked to think he was a pretty imaginative guy. Couldn't he still have said no to all this rigmarole, the border run and the recording device in his pocket, and the undercover horse in the trailer? Evie couldn't really have kept him handcuffed to a flagpole indefinitely, could she? He could have been starting his new job right now, playing selections from Porgy and Bess. Oh, dear Jesus. Or he could have lit out for the hills as he'd threatened. Those ominous threats about tracking him down were bluff and bluster, weren't they? He could have had his heels up in Vegas already, except for the gross inconvenience that he was stone broke. Also inconvenient, it was Evie asking, and he'd have done a half-gainer off Mount Rushmore if she'd asked. In the end, Evie had squared it with the hotel management and his new boss that he would start a few days later than planned, and so here he sat, at the morgue, all cargo in tow, waiting for Rolf. It seemed like a moment to sigh, so Mac sighed. They'd drive south a couple hours, maybe have a good heart-to-heart on the way, all of it recorded for evidentiary purposes, and then Mac would deliver Rolf and Coffin to the port, where agents would pick them up. Evie would notify the border agents of the plan, so there'd be no problem on crossing, though there shouldn't be, in any event, on account of Rolf's credentials. And for good measure, Mac, McCune, would go ahead and deliver Mac, the horse, along with everyone's condolences to Jorge's son, who would meet the party there at the port. That was how Evie laid it all out. It was warm, and Rolf was late. Mac stewed going over everything in his mind. Several days from Las Cruces on, several years before that, Evie in San Diego, diplomats, missiles, horses, borders, and one dead man. Mac had stepped over frozen drunks and bums before, bleeding men on gross streets, but withal he was a relative stranger to violence. Rolf arrived in a Lincoln town car. He got out looking trim and serene, not at all like a man soon to be delivered into the maw of international justice. Of course, Rolf didn't know what fate awaited him, but that in itself was a little mysterious, Mac thought. Why had he lapped up Evie's plan so readily? If he was the operative Evie posited he was, experienced and canny, tactically flawless, why hadn't his radar gone off? Because of Evie's allure? Well, Mac admitted to himself that wasn't so hard to believe, after all. Rolf presented himself. He had both a briefcase and a leather overnight bag. Mr. McCune, he said. Mr. Morstad, Mac said. Are we off to Tijuana, then? Rolf asked. Mac nodded. I believe we are, he said. My father was a professor of history, Rolf was saying. Politics. I think your universities call it political science. We call it politology. He wrote case studies of the great practitioners in European history. 
Clausewitz, Bismarck. Then you see, when the war broke out again in 39, he was called to advise the government, but we all see what happened. No organization, strategic and operational incompetence, and occupation, therefore. Rolf looked out the window at the passing landscape, the scrubby desert vegetation that so ill-matched his cleanliness and Nordic sophistication. Mac snuck a peek at him, deep in thought. Mac looked for evil somewhere, a demonic sheen to the fingernails, a viciousness deep in the ear that might have indicated this courteous gentleman reminiscing sadly about his ancestry had offed a Mexican horse trader cup. But nada. This was the whole generation, I think, Rolf went on, the whole generation of my fathers, which tended to be incapable of praxis, you know, of putting anything into action. They were like innocent children who imagine the whole worlds, but can only build with cardboard. Mac thought this was said with a certain mix of bitterness and pity, and affection, but it was hard to tell. Rolf was more demonstrative than most Norwegians Mac had ever met, but that was something like being the fastest turtle in the pond. Mac remembered the way Rolf had seemed to use his eyes as tools of ingratiation, as professional weapons, and he looked at him again quickly. Rolf was still looking out the window, inaccessible. But imagine me going on like this, Rolf said eventually. How did we even get started on the subject? Oh, Mac said, you had asked where I was from, and I said South Dakota, and that got us off on the topic of the Dakotas and all the Norwegian immigrants and Norwegian ancestry and history and so on. Ah, yes, Rolf recalled. But I cut you off with my stories, and we never heard of your family. Mac shrugged. Not much to tell, I suppose. But your father, your mother, what did they do? Mac shrugged again, a flinchy kind of move with his shoulder. Somehow he was resisting getting into this. But he didn't want to seem suspicious either. Rolf was so smooth that it was easy to forget the whole setup here, the slightly dubious sting operation the coffin full of rocket technology to be reverse-engineered in Russia, and the recording device in Mac's pocket, which, if it was working, was apparently going to get a bizarre kind of therapy session instead of anything incriminating. Mac thought he'd better do his best to keep his eye on the ball, and so figured he had to cough up. My old man wrote for the local newspaper. I see, Rolf said. And your mother? She was a housewife and a flautist. Amateur. Really? Rolf seemed to enjoy this. So this is where you got your musical abilities, obviously. Well, yes and no, Mac admitted. She was good enough. But my old man was the one who wanted to be an artist, a writer. But he was a writer. Not the way he saw it. Hell, you've been all over the Midwest and the West, your consular territory. You know what these small-town operations are like. True. No, my old man, he was always reading Dreiser and Hemingway and Dos Passos, when he wasn't drinking, that is. Ah, I understand. And this is your inheritance, art and drinking, as mine is my father's incompetence. For the first time, Mac felt a little edgy toward Rolf. Even with the lurking question of murder, he was such a genius of bonhomie, such a kind of interpersonal savant, that Mac had still felt terrific about him. But this seemed a little macabre somehow. Besides, 
What did an aristocratic Scandinavian know about Mac's family? Max had his sail in his own particular direction, and it didn't have anything to do with his old man or Dos Passos or anybody. Mac not having said anything in response, Ralph went on. You see, Mac, you and I, we are the products of our fathers, inasmuch as we derive from them the structure and impetus of our lives. Inevitably, we react against them, yes? But in so doing, we perfect their tendencies. Your father had an inkling of the artistic impulse, but you saw how sad and incomplete it was. So you insisted that yours would be a consummate art, and indeed, you are a musician. My father saw a kind of mathematical beauty in the movements of political power, but he was useless in crisis times because he didn't know how to do imperfect things. So I swore I would not be the ineffectual dreamer he was. But of course, I do what I do. All my imperfect bureaucratic maneuvering, also in the service of history. We are our father's mech. We are their completion, their closure. Mac saw that Rolf was looking out the window again. He seemed wistful. He really meant all this, and was carried away by, if not sentiment, then at least genuine reflection. They were coming up on the border. Mac could feel his guts tense a little, but Rolf remained in his reverie. Imperfect things, he said. That's what I've learned in my life, Mac. The necessity of imperfection. Once on the far side, Evie was right, Rolf had waived his diplomatic passport and been granted all but instant passage, they weren't long getting to Rosarito, the terminal where everything was supposed to be set. Mac was to look for an orange truck and trailer, that would be Jorge's son, Hector. Mac should park get out and go over to Hector's truck. While he did that, dock workers, who would actually be undercover Mexican federal agents, would come to unload the coffin and take it for inspection before loading it on a Norwegian fishing vessel docked at the port. The inspector, also an agent, would refuse Rolf's diplomatic assurances, demand to open the coffin, find the contraband U.S. missile elements, and arrest Rolf on the spot. Mac wouldn't have to do anything but let Hector collect well, Mac. The beginning stages of all this went fine. Mac pulled into a loading area where he saw a dirty orange GMC flatbed rigged out with an even dirtier old horse trailer behind it. His pulse was higher than he'd have liked, but the sight of the truck had a certain grounding effect. Things seemed in place. Looks like that's Hector's rig there, Mac said, shutting off the engine. I'll go see if he's ready to get his horse. Yeah, good, Rolf said, collecting his briefcase and bag. I'll see about getting someone to unload my compatriot back there. My ex-compatriot. Mac nodded. He wondered if the agents would come right away, or if they would wait for Rolf to go find them, so to speak. He didn't see anybody coming yet. He and Rolf both got out. Mac walked toward the orange truck, but watched Rolf out of the corner of his eye. He strode easily, like nothing unusual was afoot, and he disappeared into the low office building some thirty yards or so from the water. Mac's tongue was stuck to the roof of his mouth with nerves. On Mac's arrival at Hector's truck, he noted a considerable inconsistency with the plan. There was no Hector, not in the cab of the truck, nor the bed, not mucking around getting things ready in the trailer. Nowhere. There simply was no Hector. 
there was a distinct and unmistakable lack of Hector. Mac looked everywhere around the lot. Maybe he'd gone to the gents. Maybe he was shooting the shit with workers down in the office where Rolf had gone. But should Mac go look for him or stay put? Passel of droopy dock workers and overalls was coming up to the trailer that had Mac, the horse, and the coffin in it, and Mac jogged back over to it from the hectorless old GMC. The workers paid little attention to him. They opened the trailer and started trying to unload the coffin, but it had shifted during the trip, and it was awkward in the cramped space. Mac, the horse, was nonplussed and began to display his agitation. Without a word, one of the workers deftly untied him, maneuvered him out of the trailer, and handed his lead rope to Mac, McCune. The coffin was then easily extricated, and the workers made toward the dock. Hey, Mac McCune said to them, not knowing what else to say. Were these the agents? Dumbstruck, he followed them a ways down toward the water, until Mac, the horse, shied from some imagined shadow or other and pulled back. That left Mac and Mac both standing with their mouths open, watching a coffin get loaded onto a boat flying the red and blue off-center cross of the Norwegian flag. Of the two of them, Mac and Mac, only Mac McCune recognized on the deck of that boat the familiar shape of Evie Gardiner. She looked at him for a long moment and finally held up her hand to him, palm out in a kind of apology, as Rolf emerged from the office building. Rolf himself never looked back as he climbed aboard. When the boat began to push off from the dock, Rolf went below deck, and Evie followed. Later that day, Mac sold McFarland's unreasonable expectations to a real estate developer outside Mexicali for $100, because there wasn't any Hector, and there never had been. Just like there weren't any agents, and indeed there was no body in the coffin, and Evie Gardner didn't have any kind of federal law enforcement job. She and Rolf Morstadt were Soviet spies, who eliminated the cop that had been dogging them, got Mac to haul their secrets for them, and then, likely as not, never set foot in the U.S. again. What was difficult about people, Mac often thought, was that the way we develop compassion for them is through keen insight into their flaws. This may have been a slightly more elaborate way of stating the folksy truism that what we love about people is precisely that which tends to drive us crazy about them in the end. And it may have been as well a reformulation of Rolf Morstadt's pian to imperfection. Either way, it was a realization that was to sustain Mac through a kind of prime that did in fact begin to emerge for him in the wake of that day. Not a prime of success, necessarily, though he did go back to his new gig at the Coronado and would eventually make the Mac 5 a San Diego institution after bringing them in to replace the tepid Coronado house band that had been in place originally, but more a prime of equanimity and perspective, a prime, even, of peace. Years later, at a track in Chula Vista, Mac spotted a four-year-old with a curious name set to run from the rail in the mile-and-a-quarter fifth race. The horse's name was Pasture Mac, and he was running at twenty to one. At the window where Mac, Mac McCune, bet on Pasture Mac to win, a fellow track patron voiced disbelief. You crazy? That horse has asthma. So did his sire. Mac was untroubled. 
He called to mind Jorge and the thoroughbred work ethic. Could be, he admitted. But long as you don't keep him cooped up in a barn, I got a feeling he'll run all day. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pen Dust Radio. For more information or to submit your writing to the podcast, please visit pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com. The story featured in this episode is a work of fiction. Names, characters, places, and incidents are the products of the author's imagination or are used fictitiously. Any resemblance to actual events, locales, or persons, living or dead, is entirely coincidental.